And now, the Mistaken Identity Podcast with David and Frank presents Cultural Conversations, a week-long series on race, religion, and inclusion. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not represent those of any team, business, or sponsor. Discretion is advised. To introduce myself, my name is Thomas Butler Guerrero. I'm a sports journalism senior at IUPUI in Indianapolis. I first joined the uh, Cubs premier team in 2019. I enjoyed every single second that I have spent at Wrigley Field. I'm originally from Gary, Indiana. I've uh, been a Cubs fan my entire life. Uh, the staff members as a collective make the environment so much better and made me want to show up to work early. I was able to watch some of the photographers, broadcasters, journalists, see how they set up pregame. And it, you know, it gave me a new outlook on how I wanted, to, how much time and effort they are able to just make even one out of the 162 game season. Perfect. Um I also want to thank event supervisor Frank Walker for allowing me to moderate one of the sessions during the Black History Month series. Uh, let me break down how this session will go. Um, I will introduce the former MLB player and interview him with specific questions that I've been wanting to ask him. Uh, this will hopefully help ignite the conversations. We've already had great conversations with a bunch of Cubs, former Cubs players. And if you have any questions, please either raise your hand or drop your question in the chat box. Uh, Frank will handle the questions from the students and Sharon will either unmute your mic or relay the question uh, to Ray himself. Uh, without further ado, let me introduce our newest member of the Black History Month Cubs session. Ray Burris. Uh, he had a 15-year career, uh, MLB career. He spent over six seasons with the Cubs. He was the he was a 17th round draft pick in 1972, and after his career, he went into the coaching ranks with some teams that you guys know well: the Milwaukee Brewers, the Texas Rangers, the boring St. Louis Cardinals, the Detroit Tigers, and the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, he is an inspiration to a lot of to a lot of young black men, including myself. Uh, he didn't go division one. He came out of an NAIA. He went to South, uh, Southwestern Oklahoma State and took the team all the way to fifth place in the national NAIA championship series uh, and broke a then record 150K season. And even making it to the MLB out of the NAIA is incredible in itself, but got a complete game in his very first career start. So. Uh, Ray, I, again, thank you so much for joining our series, and I will get to the questions now. Um, again, as soon as I'm done with these questions, you guys, if you have any questions, drop them in the chat box or simply raise your hand and make sure you're writing them down, uh, taking notes of everything that we have going today. Uh, so, Ray, the first question I have for you, were there any players that you idolized while you were growing up? When I was growing up, Thomas, my, my number one fan or player was Bob Gibson. I could uh, emulate Bob Gibson on the mound. It was just the way he went about his business. There was a, there was an aura to his body language and the way he went down that slope with authority, as I say, uh, for many years. And uh, he was a nasty competitive <clears throat> on the mound. And I, I relished in that. I really did. Uh, there were other pitchers I enjoyed watching, but Bob Gibson struck me with the way he went down the slope. Uh, arms and elbows and legs. And I mean, he was coming at you with full throttle. For sure. For myself, I'll definitely say about like, I grew up with players like Ken Griffey, the kid. I just saw somebody who was a teenager 
you know, doing everything on the baseball path. And he, you know, led the way for so many young people to be able to uh, enjoy the game of baseball in a different light because he made the game fun. Uh, can you reflect on the various struggles you had being a black player uh, during the major or in the majors during your career? Growing up in the state of Oklahoma in the 50s, um, I may get emotional on this. For sure. You guys just bear with me. There was a lot of things I went through as, as a black man in this country. To be told that you are not worthy to walk on this planet, to be called the N-word to your face from someone you didn't know, to know that when I crossed the white line on a baseball field, my name was Ray. When I crossed back over that line, I didn't have the same privileges as I had when I crossed the line between the, between the lines. Meaning, I couldn't stay in the hotels. I couldn't eat in the restaurants. I couldn't swim in the swimming pools. Of course, I couldn't swim, so that wouldn't have made any difference anyway. Um, if they couldn't find a black family for me to stay with across the tracks, they put me up in a gymnasium in a cot in the middle of a gymnasium by myself. What that did to me, I had to sleep with a nightlight until I was age 45 was when I was able to get rid of that thought, that darkness, that blackness, that coldness, that loneliness. But there was a mustard seed of hope in my spirit, Thomas, that to be able to go out there and compete between those lines was my voice. I couldn't say what I wanted to say. So sports enabled me to let the emotion come out, whether it was basketball or baseball. And that's what intrigued me about Bob Gibson. It looked like every emotion that he had in his body was coming out every time he threw the baseball. And I emulated that. And so for me, I don't look back and say, you know, why did I have to go through this? I'm thankful I went to it because it made me who I am today. I could be hateful. I could be revengeful. Why? Life is too short. God put a spirit in my heart to love people, but most of all, to love myself. And I did. All of that taught me how to love myself. All of that taught me how to strive to be something. I didn't know I had a chance to play professional baseball. But there was something that allowed me to flourish when I got the opportunity. And one of the things I could do, I could throw strikes. I could hit a net 50 yards. I learned how to throw strikes from hunting with rocks. In Oklahoma in the 50s, you had so many jackrabbits and rabbits, you could ride down the street in a quarter of a mile and run over 12 or 15 because it was, it was just that plentiful. So there was a lot of things that happened in my childhood that I was able to uh, enhance in my, in, in my life later on. But there was a lot of pioneers. There was a lot of inventors. There was a lot of creators. There was a lot of, 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 of Black Americans way before me that gave me hope. Jackie Robinson, Ernie Banks being the first Black club, club, club player. A lot of those players 
helped me to understand that I could be successful. Getting a chance to meet Rachel Robinson, I never got a chance to meet Jackie, but getting a chance to meet Rachel Robinson gave me the opportunity to thank her for what her and Jackie went through to pave the way. And there's many others, whether it's teachers, whether it's astronauts, Black History Month is a month of a lot of celebration for a lot of wonderful people that never got put in the record books. So I'm thankful of who I am, what I am, what those journeys and struggles gave me in my life today. And I know how to enjoy life. And I know how to be happy within myself. And that's the beauty of it all, Thomas. That's the beauty of it all. Ray, for sure, that is an extremely powerful message. Again, to all the kids, all the students that are watching this, you never know who's listening to you and how this may affect their life. Uh, you said you met Rachel Robinson. One of the people that I wish I had the opportunity to meet was Wendell Smith, the first Black journalist that was able to cover Jackie Robinson because of the things that he had to endure. Like, absolute powerful stuff. Uh, so you have over 50 years of baseball experience. Uh, that's Five, you've been through five decades of incredible baseball. You've seen Hall of Famers start their careers and end their careers. Uh, I want to know your thoughts on the rise of minorities in executive and managerial roles. I think it's great. I really do. And I think it's long overdue. And I'm always a big component of it's never too late. It's never too late. Uh, the women who are coming into sports, being general managers and minor league and major league hitting coaches and uh, executives throughout the game of, of, of all sports, I think it's beautiful. Um, the many first in a lot of areas in our country, you know, Kamala Harris, the first black woman VP of the United States, um, a lot of unique opportunities that we're getting to see in this country through a lot of the unrest that we've seen in this country. Look what's coming out of all of that. I'm very hopeful for our young people going forward. I'm very hopeful for what they stand for. And I'm very hopeful with the, what they have shown what they stand for. But I think as we go forward as, a, as people, doesn't matter what race you're in. It, it matters that you're a human being. And when you allow the humanity in your demeanor to come forth, I truly believe you don't see color. I truly believe that. You see an individual. You see a person that has emotion, that has feelings, that has thoughts, that has opinions, that has beliefs. And I think they all need to be heard, my friend. For sure. Um, you have had an extraordinary opportunity to take the mound against some of the greatest players, some Hall of Famers in MLB history, uh, even including the late uh, Hank Aaron. Uh, I would like for you to reflect on some of your experiences against some of the better batters that you have ever faced. Well, I'll tell you what, Thomas, these guys can hit. You know, Hank Aaron got his last Grand Slam off of me in Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta. Uh Ugh. Straight away center field. When they left the bat, I thought it was a routine fly ball. They just kept carrying, carrying, carrying. Um, for his career, he went four for five off of me. So he hit over 800. Uh, 
I'm not ashamed of that because I wasn't the kind of guy that went for strikeouts. I went for contact. Uh, so I kept him in the ballpark one time on those 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 four hits he got out of the five at bats. But uh, Hank was just a unique, consistent ball player that every year went about his business. I used to call him the usual. That means what is Hank gonna do in in in, in 72? The usual. Yes. 40 some home runs, 100 some RBIs, never hit 50 in any season, but he stayed around 40, 44, 45, and just did the usual every year. And the one thing that was interesting about, about Hank um, being able to sit down and talk with him, uh, as you play the game of baseball or even the game of life, Thomas, there's a lot of people that that lean on you, that come to your aid in different parts of your life, that like the way what they see and the way you go about your business and offer assistance. And Bud Sillick, who was our former commissioner, who was my owner when I played with the Brewers, was the one that saw something in me that brought me from playing right back into the coaching ranks in one day and was teaching me and developing me to be a general manager along with Sal Bando. Most people don't even know this. Mm-hmm. And we were we were being groomed. Harry Dalton was a general manager. And we were being groomed as to be general managers in the big leagues. And so I got a chance to get that exposure. I never became a general manager. Sal Bando did. But I got the exposure. And that was very valuable to me. And... But Silic was key in bringing Hank, Hank back and getting him franchises throughout the Midwest because he loved Hank Aaron. But Silic loved baseball. And uh, uh, so you have somebody in your corner like that that sees something that they admire and appreciate and comes to your aid to say, hey, what do you want to learn? You need, you need to have something to fall back on life after baseball. And that's what I'm thankful for in teammates of mine, Billy Williams, Ferguson Jenkins, Jose Cardinal, Randy Hunley, Don Kessinger. Okay. All of these guys took me under their wings. Glenn Becker, Ron Sano. They took me under their wings, even Ernie Banks, and taught me how to build my credit, how to pay for my cars and houses while I played the game how to save while I played the game, how to establish your monthly income while you played the game. So once you get out of the game, you have familiarized yourself with this living style. Even if I made a million a year, you know, you're not going to make a million a year when you're done playing the game of baseball. So that was very beneficial to me, and I was able to pass that on. Uh, but but Hank was Hank was a unique ball player that just did the usual every year, year after year after year. And that was a phrase we used about, back in the 70s. For sure. You have uh, you have talked about some of the greatest players that you have been able to uh, play alongside. Uh, I want to I want you to take us all back 40 years ago uh, to the 1981 Expos team after your Cubs tenure. 
um, you were able to play with some greats like Gary Carter, Tim Raines, even Andre, even Andre Dawson, who joined our Zoom call in one of the previous sessions. Can you take us back through that World Series run that you guys had and taking the mound for the first time in the postseason? That was uh, the year of the strike. Uh, we went out in June. The Phillies were leading the Eastern Division when we went out, and they decided to have a second half. The Phillies were the first half winner, so it was up for grabs of who, who was going to win the second half. Well, we ended up beating the Cardinals in the second half. I know you're not too sad about that. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we go into the divisional series against the Philadelphia Phillies. So Steve Rogers goes up against Steve Carlton. And Steve Carlton has uh, uh, had had a pretty good year that year, and we know what kind of pitcher he was. Uh, and uh, Steve Rogers, you know, had done very well for us in that short season. And uh, so he beats Carlton, and it was the best two out of three in that series. So we ended up beating the Phillies two out of three. I didn't perform very well in the, in the divisional series. And I think I went four and a third, four and two thirds in Philadelphia, which I had pitched very well during the regular season and during my career up until that point in Philadelphia. And uh, I just didn't have a good game. Maybe it was my, my nerves. It was the first time I was in the playoffs. And maybe I was trying to do too much. We win the series in Philadelphia. We go from Philadelphia to Los Angeles, who had just come back from a 2 nothing deficit against the Houston Astros. And that was the year of Fernando Valenzuela. We go into, into uh, L.A. We have an off day. We have a workout at, at uh, uh, Dodger Stadium. And I'm doing a touch and feel, which is like 10 or 12 pitches. I'm working on something. Something wasn't feeling right in my delivery. And during that process, I figured out what I was doing in my delivery. So Bill Gullickson starts the first game against the Dodgers. We lose four to one. I'm in my room that night. NBC is covering that series. And they're announcing the lineup of the Dodgers. And they'll they'll announce every player on that lineup, including the pitcher, Fernando Venezuela. They get to the Expos. They'll announce everybody in that lineup but me. And my name is right there on the screen. And I'm like, really? Interesting. So that was my motivation. And I had gathered some information during the year from Dusty Baker Mm. and some other players on that league that I retained in my mind. But what stayed most in dominant, Thomas, was that news reporter didn't announce my name. That took me to another universe. So that was my challenge. So at the end of that game, which I shut the Dodgers out three to nothing on a five hitter and beat Fernando Valenzuela, okay, at that time, they would come down and get you in the clubhouse and take you down to the media room. So I got dressed, went down to the media room. They announced who I was. I get on the podium and I say, ladies and gentlemen, um, there will be no question and answers tonight. And I said, I'm going to tell you why. And I proceeded to tell them why. And I said, y'all write what you want to write. You were here. You just won't get no information from me. And I walked out, never gave NBC an interview the rest of that series. Naturally, we didn't get to the World Series, but I pitched very well in game five of that World Series of that play of the National League Championship Series against Valenzuela. And he never beat me that year. Mm. He never beat me that year. And 
I'm very thankful for that opportunity. And whatever my motivation was, I'm thankful for that motivation because it gave me the platform to go out and pitch like a hungry dog. And that's what I did. So, so was there that, a year in which you took the mound and you just felt the most dominant? This could have been that, in high school. Could have been in college. This could have been your rookie year last year. Like, was there a year that you just felt like nobody could hit you? The second half of 1976. I went, With, I was, I, I just had a 15 and 10 year in 75, my first year as a starter. I get to the playoffs. I get to the playoffs, uh, to the uh, all-star game in 76. I'm four and 10 at the all-star break. My first start is in San Diego on the road. I lose that game on a walk-off two to one complete game. Mm. Gene Richards is at second base, a base hit to right field. Jose Cardinal comes up gun into Randy Hunley at the plate. Randy goes up the line to get the ball and, and goes for the edge of the plate. And Gene Richards jumps over him onto the mm. plate safe. Yeah. Now I'm four and 11. I'm four and 11. After the after my first start, complete game after All-Star break. So we're busting it from San Diego to Los Angeles. I'm looking at the schedule. I got 15 starts left, Thomas. 15 starts. And this is a true story. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at who I'm playing. Okay. Obviously, that was your Cincinnati Reds won the World Series back to back. I got them twice in the month of August. I I counted up how many teams I thought I could beat. I came up with 11, two and two. Okay. So I went 11, yeah. two and two to finish at 15 and 13. Uh, and I, I, I threw a game against the Cincinnati Reds in, in Wrigley field, complete game, three to nothing victory on 81 pitches in a complete game. I come back the next start against Atlanta Braves, beat them four to nothing on 83 pitches, complete game. I was 6-0 in the month of August, pitcher of the month in the National League for August. I beat out Jerry Kuzman, who was having a heck of a year that year for the New York Mets. He also won 20 games. It didn't matter who came to the plate. In my heart and in my spirit, they had no chance. No chance. And uh, uh, so that was probably the most dominant comeback for me in my career in that second half, going 11-2-2 two two in 1976. For sure. And that's incredible that you did that while being in the same division as a team that back to back with big red and big reds. It's incredible. Absolutely. Hey, it's incredible. I remembered it. Yeah, it's crazy <laughs> that you remember. That. <laughs> wow. You remember uh, those things. I mean, it's like you pitch the game in your mind. It stays in your mind over the years. Yeah. So you noted that Bud Selig was one of the biggest uh, influences that got you into coaching. Can you elaborate on your transition coaching after your playing career? Bud Selig saw me do something in 1985 when I was a member of the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, we had some young players named Greg Vaughn, Mike Felder, Ernie Riles, Gary Sheffield, uh, uh, Daryl Hamilton that were in our modeling system. And, and at the end of the year, you know, they bring up, you know, players from the minor leagues. Well, when they came up, uh, I had uh, Mike Felder and Ernie Riles to stay with me. And I didn't charge them any rent. And I taught them what Jose Cardinal, Billy Williams, Ferguson Jenkins, the, what they taught me when I first came up. And I did the cooking for them. 
I had a car, so I they rode back and forth to the ballpark with me. I took everything away from them so they could concentrate on their game, and I would talk to them. And so Bud Silic found out about that. How? I don't know. He just found out about it. So when I finished playing, he flew me out to Chandler, Arizona, and talked to me during spring training and offered me the position of grooming me for a general manager. He thought I'd make a good general manager. And, uh, uh, and I thought that was very commendable of him to do that. I actually, that year, came back out of the front office and pitched the last two months of the season in the big leagues, mm. being groomed as a general manager. Yes, 1987. So I have one final question for you before I turn it over, for, uh, turn it over to Frank for the student questions. Yes, sir. Uh, I hope all the former staff members, I wish I was on the, the premier team when, the, or even the Cubs, the Cubs co-workers when this all was going down. I want to ask you specifically where you were when the Cubs ended up winning the World Series. November 2nd, 2016, do you remember where you were? And go, take us through the emotions of that game. I was in Clearwater, Florida, watching Rajay Davis hit that home run off of Chapman on a slider down and in, and he just golfed it. And then the rains came, and they had the rain delay. And when that last out was made from uh, from Chris, throwing it to uh, Rizzo. Anthony Rizzo, man, I, I think I jumped higher than uh, the Toyota Leaper out of my chair. <laughs> Man, it's been it's 108 years. For sure. I didn't think I'd ever get – I'm like, come on, I got to see a World Series with the Cubs before I get leave. Yeah. <laughs> 108 years. But you know what was really unique about that, Thomas? Um, there was a lady that was 108 years old that passed away, but she saw the Cubs win a World mm-hmm. Series. 108 years old. That, That's now, that, now, you, hey, you talk, now, we always talk about the baseball gods in the world of baseball. You know, the baseball guys took care of her. So I'll say that I've uh, I've had it pretty easy uh, as long as I've been a Cubs fan. You know, I was born in 97. So the Cubs were great in the early thousands. The Cubs were great in the late, you know, 2008, 2009. They made the play the postseason. The Cubs had a great, you know, core even before 2016. Uh, During the World Series run, uh, I was a freshman in college. I was so hyped when Dexter Fowler hit that home run. That was that was my biggest moment as a Cubs fan. I ne- I remember just knowing that millions of people had to be on their feet when Dexter Fowler hit that ball. Uh, when Rajay Davis hit the ball out of the park, I ended up leaving my school. I said I would never watch another baseball game again if we lose <laughs> this game. I said I couldn't watch it. Like I I was I'm huge into radio. I love watching Cubs or listening to Cubs radio. So I listened to the rest of the game. Found I went right. to the gym. Found out that you know the game got delayed. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna work out. By the time I get back <laughs> in my car, the game should be back on. Uh, time I get back in my car, you know, the tenth inning goes by. Schwarber hits the single. Uh, Albert Almora tags up. Uh, Rizzo gets walked. Uh, Zobris hits the double. The rest is history. Rest is uh, but I was a I was a freshman in college, and that was a very like huge huge moment for me. I've been a Cubs fan my entire life, and I'm so glad that I was able to see them win one. Well, I'm I'm. I'm happy that you got to see it too, Thomas. There was a lot of good years prior to your 
coming into this world in 97, um, there was a lot of good baseball at, at Wrigley Field and a lot of good players that came way before you came into the scene. So, and there'll be a lot of good ones after afterwards as well. But uh, I'm glad you got a chance to see that. And I'm glad I got a chance to see it as well. But I was glued to that TV. Oh, yeah. For sure. Again, Ray, I want to thank you so much for joining our Zoom call. Uh, I'm going to hand this over to Frank uh, so he can get the student questions out of the way. But again, I just wanted to commend you for your entire career and then taking the time out to be able to join us with the Zoom session. Well, thank you, Thomas. Good job, my friend. Good luck to you in going forward. All the best. Don't hesitate to reach out if I can do anything for you. Okay. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Okay. All right. Uh, what a roller coaster of emotions I have been on in this uh, session. <laughs> um, uh, and I have, I've heard you speak, uh, uh, Ray. I watched the uh, the Club 400 uh, interview you did, and I had already told David Jones, you're going to want to hear this session today. And uh, uh, I just wasn't prepared for uh, this. I'm the kind of person that can listen to baseball stories all day. Uh, that's just how I am. But uh, before I get to these questions, uh, if you have uh, questions you want to ask live, uh, click on the raise your hand feature. If you want to uh, put your question in the chat, uh, put it in the chat, and then Sharon will um, help to moderate that. Uh, and I'm going to answer, ask the uh, student questions. The question is from the, from the student. Uh, it says, you were drafted by the Cubs. Uh, we yes. know that uh, the drafts are huge and ESPN and families, and um, that's how the draft is now. How was the drafts for you? What was the process, the phone call, your family, compared to how it is now? The, the, the process for me, it felt like it was uh, two weeks even though it was like four days, uh, I finally got a call on the last day uh, from the Chicago Cubs. I don't even know who the representative was. Uh, in, in my mind, I was like, well, maybe I won't get an opportunity this year, but I had a plan B and that was to uh, finish my degree and uh, which I did and, um, and fall back on, on my degree. Uh, I just didn't know. Uh, I, it, was a, it was my first experience, and it was nail-biting. And when I finally got that call, it wasn't even a matter of how high I was drafted. It was just a matter of getting the opportunity, and the rest was up to me. So I was blessed. I tell you, I, I spent one year in the minor leagues, and the rest of my professional playing career was in the big leagues. All right. Uh, let me see. we got some staff with their hands up. I'm going to get to them in one minute. Uh, one, okay. more student, one more student question. Uh, what do you think about – the Cubs pitchers today. Yes. What do you think about some of the current Cubs pitchers? I think I think it's uh, you need uh, to pitch in Wrigley Field. You got to be a ground ball pitcher or sinker ball pitcher. Fly ball pitchers are do not have longevity in Wrigley Field because of the wind. Even though down the lines are 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 much longer than most ballparks in, in Major League Baseball. But the wind makes that ballpark play very small. And you got to pitch inside. You got to pitch down in the zone. And think of ground ball in, in Wrigley Field. I was a sinker slider guy. And I tried to keep the ball on the ground. I mean, I gave up home runs. Don't get me wrong, guys. You make mistakes. They're going to they're gonna get it in the air. If the wind's blowing out, it's going. Sometimes the wind's blowing in. They can cut through the air. 
because they're good hitters. So I've always felt I've never seen a ground ball go over the fence. So that was my motto when I pitched in, in Wrigley Field or any other ballpark in the league, for that matter. Uh, all right. One more student question. I have a few, actually. Uh, tell us about the first time you stepped foot in Wrigley Field. Uh, what did you think? What was your experience like? And how do you compare Wrigley Field to other places you played in? Oh, man. When I stepped in Wrigley Field and saw, saw the vines out along, along the outfield walls, uh, all I could think about was uh, three-finger Mordecai Brown, Tinker's Evers, the chance. Uh, all the, the the big names prior to me being in the big leagues, you know, the 69 club. And here I was playing with majority of those guys that were there during that uh, that that collapse coming down the, the month of September uh, to the Mets. And, you know, just a lot of, just a lot of things went through my mind. You know, the, uh, the series where Babe Ruth supposedly pointed to where he's going to hit the home run, you know, because I studied the history of the, of the Cubs. I had looked it up when I found out I was drafted by them and I wanted to know uh, the, the, the history of the ball club. But when I stepped in that ballpark, it was like, nostalgic to me it really was uh it was just un unbelievable here i was in the big leagues little country bar from oklahoma unbelievable all right i'm going to turn it over to sharon with some staff questions and i'll come back with the more student questions okay hello everybody um all right Ray, we're going to go to um david david i'm going to have you unmute and then join us hi mr burris Hi, David. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. I just uh, more so had a compliment than a question. I just wanted to thank you for that um, feedback that you gave us on the questions. It was amazing. And I just wanted to say thank you again. I appreciate it. Um, well, thank you, my friend. <laughs> thank thank so you so much. It was and I'm so sorry powerful. I can't see. I'm sorry I can't see your face. Uh, the I don't know what I did. I did something, but at least you can hear me. So I'm thankful for that. Well, no, he uh, actually David's video was off. It was not you. His video was off. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but thank you, David, for that. Thank you for that comment and 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 thought. I appreciate that. I really do. Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome, my friend. And, and Ray, I want to concur with that. I think I speak for a lot of people on the call right now. Your answers were really beautiful and, oh, and powerfully moving. There's so many circumstances that we can't understand because we haven't lived it or we didn't live during that time period, but yes, uh, you are a survivor and, and you've done some yes. amazing things and you speak so beautifully about it. So we're grateful for that today. Um, well, I'm, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um, we're going to move to Larry, who also has a question. So Larry, you're up. For, uh, Ray, thank you very much for taking the time. You're welcome, Larry. Um, now, nowadays, a fast game that's under 90 pitches is called the Maddox. Based on what you said, should they be called the Burris? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, some people will say, Larry, any way you can get your name out there is a good thing. But, um, it, you know, the game is the game has uh, has a different connotation to it now pitch counts is very big i didn't i didn't know what pitch counts was during my era uh 
you went out there and the hitters told you how long you were going to pitch uh, based on how hard they were starting to hit the ball. So, uh, you know, it, it's a different game today uh, by, by a lot of standards. Uh, but at the same time, I'm thankful for the era that I played, to be honest with you. I mean, I knew when I took the mound, I'm looking at seven innings. If I get to seven innings and I got a 10-run lead, hey, life is good. You know, I didn't depend on the bullpen. And, uh, you know, and even back then, during my era, bullpen guys would go three, four innings to get a save. My first win in the big leagues was in uh, in New York against the Mets. And uh, I pitched for uh, Milt Pappas, who had a family issue. And um, I go five innings. Five innings. My first start as a, as a, as in, in 1973 out of the bullpen. I, I was in the bullpen for 73, 74. And I pitched for Milt Pappas because I pitched as a starter in the mile leagues throughout my college career. And I go five innings. Jack Aker comes in and goes four innings to get to say we win one to nothing. One to nothing. And so, you know, you only use two pitchers. And so it's uh, it's a specialty game now where – you know, a reliever has to come in and go and face at least three hitters under the new rules. And you get to the, the, the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, and you got the three-headed monsters coming in. That, that's pulling it down. So starters only have to go six or five in the third. Uh, you don't see too many complete games today. I had in from 75, 76, 77, I had 23 complete games. That's amazing. You know, you don't, you don't see that today. You might see one or two, and you don't even see 200 inning pitchers today unless they're in the Cy Young winners. Back, back in, I mean, it was like the, the, the starting staff that the Baltimore Orioles had, four 20-game winners, you're not going to see that no more. I don't believe you're going to see that no more. Or a, a staff that has two 20-game winners. 20-game winners today are like 12 to 15-game winners. And then you have the exceptional that goes beyond that. So it's uh, it's interesting. It really is interesting, Larry. But you know what? Some things haven't changed. You still got to score more runs than the opponent. <laughs> <laughs> it's the name of the game. You got You got to hit the ball, catch the ball, throw the ball. I don't know what else to tell you. All right. Uh, this uh, student question we get for every guest we have, uh, but it is, do you think that uh, Sammy Sosa and Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame? No. I think eventually they will, probably through the Veterans Committee. Okay, let's see. Uh, what do you think about, uh, what are some of your players today that get you excited or that you are watching? Some of the, the players that I get excited today, I, I love watching Mike Trout, okay? Um, I, I love watching Max Scherzer. Um, I love watching uh, Jose Altuve. Uh, I think he's done a great uh, service with his talent and his size. Uh, he plays a big man game. Uh, uh, I think... Uh, 
um, some of the younger players, um, like the, uh, uh, the Bo Bichette's, the Vladimir Guerrero's, uh, uh, the Biggio of the Toronto Blue Jays are going to be exciting young players coming up. Juan Soto, uh, I love watching them, the way they go about it. Pete Alonso of the New York Mets, um, going to be a, a, a big, big beast for many years to come. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, uh, Javier Baez is going to be interesting as he continues to play. Um, he doesn't get cheated on his swings. And I love, I love watching the aggressiveness that he comes to the ballpark with. So all of those guys like that, you know, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. of the San Diego Padres, uh, Cody Bellinger. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do in the next four to five years. Are they going to get better? And you've seen that in Cody Bellinger uh, in the last two years, how he has improved upon his approach, his routine. And that's what I look at, uh, how a guy improves from year to year. Uh, pretty neat. It's pretty neat. All right. And this is, I think, a follow-up from the Bill Madlock session. But what do you think about the baseball broadcasters today compared to the baseball broadcasters when you played? I think the difference is the, uh, the character. Baseball broadcasters during my day had character. You know, the Vin Scullys, um, the, um, uh, the Ralph Kiners of the world. They had, they had, they had something about them, you know, the, uh, the Jack Brickhouse, uh, the Vince Lloyds, the Lou Boudreaux's, they, they had a character about them because maybe it's been, you know, they played the game, a lot of them. Uh, you know, the Bob Euchre when I was in, in Milwaukee, there was just a character about them. They had uh, Pat Hughes, you know, he came up a little bit during that era on the Bob Euchre. Uh, they, they have an aura, Frank, in regard to the way they go about their business, they understand the game. They're about getting information to share with the, with the general public, the fans. And I think that's what reporting is all about. All right, uh, question. Um, this is also a follow-up from the previous one. Uh, how do we get more African-American male or females to consider baseball over basketball and football? I think it starts at the uh, amateur level and the travel ball teams, getting the young uh, athletes in the, in the inner cities to materialize in the sport, to get developed in the sport. And I think a lot of times it's a, it's a thought process. They look at basketball and football as a quicker way to get to the professional uh, arena as opposed to baseball. And, uh, uh, I think it's just going in there and and, and developing that talent to see if, they, you know, if you could change their minds. I, I just think they're looking at the other sports more from a financial standpoint or a livelihood standpoint to help family and friends and help themselves. Um, uh, so I think Major League Baseball and um, Player Association um, – maybe come together and talk about that and develop some programs. Cause I believe you have in every city and around the US, United States, you have former players that live in those cities or in the vicinity of those cities, develop a program 
in those cities where they just start doing individual instruction, teaching, going in there and getting these young men from the YMCA's and, and teaching them, going to the schools and teaching them how to play the game of baseball. And I think you'll start seeing more players go in that direction. I really do. Okie doke. Uh, we're going to pop over to Larry first. Thank you so much for taking your time to, uh, to do this. Um, I, I think I know how you're going to answer this, but uh, how do you feel about the designated hitter in the National League? I think it's a situation, Larry, where anytime jobs can be created, I'm all for that. You may have a guy that cannot play uh, a position for, um, for, for, for a lot of reasons. He don't have a good arm. Uh, his, his coverage may not be as good, but he can still hit. And I think that's what uh, separated the American League from the National League uh, back in 1970s when they started the DH in the, in the American League to separate themselves from the National League. Uh, I think it's going to uh, eventually work itself into the lineup because um, you don't, you know, I mean, think about it. You, you don't give too much credit to a, to a pitcher hitting in the National League. Okay. I was just, I thought for sure, you know, you would say um, it makes the pitcher better if he has to um, bat versus you know, the flip side of, of being so specialized. Well, I would have said that if I was still playing, Larry, but I'm not still <laughs> playing. You know, pitchers today don't work on their craft like they should, like like we did. I got in that cage and I hit, I bunt it, because if I can't bunt, then my teammates will meet me at the front steps of the <laughs> dugout there in Wrigley Field. And I had that happen one time with Ron Sato. I didn't get a bunt down. I didn't get that runner over in scoring position. He met me at the front step, said, I want you out here tomorrow. You're going to bunt. Ron Sano, my teammate. Coaches didn't, didn't police what had to go on between the lines. The players did. And I just think guys, pitchers today, don't, don't work at that craft. They don't run the bases. They don't know how to slide. Man, I knew how to slide. I knew how to run the bases. And so um, I would hate to see it go, Larry, to be honest with you. But they sure are leaning heavily toward it. Yeah, yeah. It, it really seems are. like it's going that way, yeah. Yeah, it does. So that was why I answered it that way. Uh, but uh, if I'm still playing, I don't want no DH. <laughs> I hit for myself. There you go. That's the answer I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, I'm swinging that bat, my friend. All right. <laughs> Thank but you. That, Thank you again. You're welcome, Larry. Thank you for that question, my friend. Hey, so this is going to be like kind of a crazy question, but I oh, don't know. Name no. someone that that's playing now that could play in your era and vice versa. Mike Trout. Mike Trout could play in my era. Okay. Everybody yeah. says Mike Trout. Everybody loves Mike Trout. He is he is a, yeah. he is a beast though. Yeah. Mike Trout would be the one player in the game today I would pay to go watch. Absolutely. Yeah, he's he's very yeah. good. Yeah, I would pay. I would pay to go watch because he has he has that he has that that superstar status, but he doesn't flaunt it the wrong way. He just goes out and plays the game of yes. baseball, and 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 that's that's what is attractive to me is that 
He don't have to have all the accolades. He just want to win. He just want to win. And, you know, he, you know, for, for a guy his size and his, his talent, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he, he does the, the rest of his career. Um, I, I, would, I would love to watch him play. I've never seen him play in person on TV, yes. And what about somebody from your era playing now? Who you think would be like the one of the best players besides yourself, obviously? But <laughs> uh, from my era playing now, ooh, boy, there would be a lot of them. Uh, I would have to go with a a Ricky Henderson. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Oh, he would. He would. Yeah, it would I be. I think uh, he would. I think he could really adjust to the now because his speed, leadoff hitter, you know, the confidence. Yeah, I think he. I think he would really transcend well in today's game. Yes, absolutely. Thank you again, yeah. man. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All right. Oh, hey, you guys, be safe. Thank you for uh, allowing me to be a part of this, and hopefully, I'll see you during the course of the year in Wrigley Field. I uh, will be coming in and out quite a bit and hopefully be an ambassador for the Cubs during the course of the season.